All right, I know I have been saying that I would get to this for quite a while now, and the time has finally come. Um, it's time to talk about Sart, um, and to finally answer Pavel Pavlovich's question. Um, so, this one took me a lot of work, and I still am not entirely convinced that I've got this fully understood or explained. Um, but we're going to do the best that we can. Um, this is... Let's just jump into the question, and then I can sort of explain how I had to deal with it. Um, so, Pavel Pavlovich emailed me and said, Dear Professor Kozlowski, my name is Pavel Pavlovich. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly. I am a professor from the Singidunum University of Belgrade. Again, probably butchering that one. My primary field of interest is the 19th century novel. However, part of it strays off into the field of Sartre's phenomenology. As I am not much of an expert in this, I would ask you a brief question. The following would be my line of thought. What I am being curious about is the relationship between the phenomenological reduction in Sartre's sense and transgression. According to the Stanford Encyclopedia, and he quotes it at some length, Authenticity is achieved, Sartre claims, by a conversion that entails abandonment of our original choice to coincide with ourselves consciously, the futile desire to be in itself, for itself, or a god, and thereby free ourselves from identification with our egos as being in itself. In our present alienated condition, we are responsible for our egos as we are for any object of consciousness. Mr. Pavlovich goes on, imagine that an identification with one egos is part of an ideological system. If the capitalist ideology forces the subject to see himself alienated from nature and himself as being in itself, can we argue that the subject's phenomenological conversion is transgressive in relation to the ideology that forms that worldview? Any thoughts? Yours, Pavel Pavlovich. Now, let me sort of just, like, contextualize this a bit, because I know that most of my listeners are probably scratching their heads at this point fairly thoroughly. Um, this is an example of what I would frequently call a hardcore scholarly question. Like, it is very specific, it is very focused, um, it is very particularly oriented towards one particular scholar and their particular way of thinking. Um, this is the sort of question that scholars will literally spend, like, hours in conferences, you know, shouting at each other over and getting very worked up over um and it is way above my pay grade like i'm not gonna not gonna deny that right now um i am not a sart scholar um i am considerably more of one after doing all of this research but i am still not by any extent of the imagination authoritative on this subject um my first like gut reaction upon reading this was like oh shit like no i'm not gonna do this um, largely because, again, I don't have the knowledge base. So let me start by, you know, just sort of laying down a blanket caveat um, that I am not up to this question. Um, I am going to do my best to answer it, given the knowledge that I've amassed over the last couple of months and given the sort of understanding of phenomenology that I've had going into this. Um, but, like, seriously, this is a conversation you should be having with some of the leading SART scholars. Um, uh, just because, like, I definitely don't know what I'm doing. Um, I'm not familiar with the language. I'm not reading Sartre in the original French in this case. Like, that would be even more time-consuming on my end. Like, I could theoretically do it, but it's been a long time since I've had to break out my languages. Um, which, you know, just is all the more indication of why I am not up to this question. 
Um, but I do want to take a stab at it. Like, partially because I want to do it. Like, I'm always eager for a challenge and research. And, you know, I, I want to know more about Sartre. Um, he's one of, the, one of the thinkers that I, you know, keep running into, keep identifying with. One of the most powerful thinkers of the 20th century. Like, by all means, let me take a stab at it. Um, but my answers may very well not be conclusive on this one like even looking at the question there are bits that i have sort of questions and are not entirely sure what's going on um but again we're taking a stab at it so in preparation for answering this question i read sartre's transcendence of the ego i read a good third of sartre's being in nothingness and i skimmed sartre's notebooks for an ethics in order to get a better idea um, I definitely read over the Stanford Encyclopedia article that Pavel Pavlovich sent my way. Um, for those of you playing along at home, that is the Stanford Encyclopedia article on Jean-Paul Jean Sartre. Um, specifically, uh, Pavel Pavlovich is quoting from section four on ethics. Um, he's quoting from like the second paragraph and I went on and read the whole section on ethics, which is where I got the idea to go find the books that I did anyhow. Um, but again, that doesn't feel remotely enough. I did poke around the internet looking for articles that possibly confronted this. Most of them were not oriented towards the philosophy or phenomenology side of this question, but rather the psychological side. Apparently there's a lot of work being done on Sartre from psychologist standpoint, like doing the existential therapy um, or phenomenological therapy for that matter. Um, there's apparently like a lot of overlap there. But as far as I can tell, this is not a question that has come up in the conversation, but I could be wrong. I could just be missing it. I am just working from my computer at this point after all, um, and whatever I can find at the library. Uh, so enough hemming and hawing, let's dive into this question. Um, so you'll remember from last lecture on phenomenology, I tackled the subject of Husserl's phenomenological reduction. Um, this two-step movement by which we prepare ourselves to do phenomenology. First, by committing the epoche, by bracketing our experience, by sort of putting it within a like limitation so we can properly understand it without getting confused about the world and everything going on that like connects to it. Um, and on the other hand, you have to do the, the reduction proper, the recognition that you are still like related to that world, despite bracketing the world, despite setting apart what you want to analyze, you also have to recognize that you believe that. Um, you have to see what the world and what your experience is telling you specifically. You have to both deny and affirm. You have to both recognize your distance from the world and recognize your indebtedness to the world. Um, now, Mr. Pavlovich sets Sartre's f version of phenomenological reduction apart. That's not something I ran across in his philosophy, although again, that just might reveal my ignorance about Sartre. Um, so my approach instead was to sort of try and look at the way that Sartre interacts with Husserl, how Sartre like um, accepts certain elements of Husserlian philosophy and the phenomenological reduction in general, how his philosophy relates to Husserl and the phenomenological reduction, um, and then how that sort of works together. So I may have already missed the point of this question, um, but I think this was the most profitable way to go about it, at least given my uh, time limitations. 
Um, and the first thing that strikes me about this question is, yeah, it makes sense that the phenomenological reduction might be transgressive in Sartrean philosophy. Um, you'll remember, like, back when I did my lecture on Sartre for my intro class, I mentioned that, you know, in the humanism, con or existentialism is a form of human humanism, um, Sartre stresses that what he's looking for is authenticity. Um, he's looking for a philosophical perspective um, that, you know, that come, springs from the self, not, you know, layered down with expectations or with um, any sort of, like, what one should be. Um, he stresses that you cannot actually solve your problems by passing the buck to somebody else. Like, you are free, you have to accept that freedom, and any amount of, you know, pretending that freedom is not yours is wrong. Um, and with that in mind, I mentioned at least a little bit in the lecture that this has to do with bad faith. Now, bad faith is the one part of Sartrean philosophy that I really knew pretty cold going into this whole discussion, largely because, like many moons ago, um, I was talking about bad faith in terms of art and the artist and how um, like being able to write a good novel requires you to just not pay attention to bad faith. Um, my thesis when I was an undergrad was on uh, ethics and uh, writing, ethics and fiction, following very much John Gardner's On Moral Fiction, and he there takes on Freud, Sartre, and Wittgenstein, and I did the same, um, to sort of show that there was philosophical reasoning behind Gardner's particular attacks on those three figures. Um, at any rate, bad faith was the thing that I thought might have the most to do with this subject. Again, probably because I knew it the best. Um, I learned differently over the course of this, but I do want to sort of explore that initial assumption that I made, that, that phenomenological reduction could be a transgression of bad faith, um, that Sartre would consider Husserl's move beyond the self to be something that you can't actually do. Um, see, in bad faith, while it's kind of difficult to explain, and I imagine all of this will be kind of difficult to explain, bad faith very much involves sort of casting yourself into a role. Um, he, in The Being and Nothingness, he has this long extended passage where he talks about a waiter who's coming to the table and he's like trying to be the best waiter ever and doing all sorts of waitery things like being super polite and being very precise in his movements. And he notices that it's too precise in his movements. He's too polite. It's very obvious that he's putting on a show. Um, but he's not just putting on a show for the people at the table. He is putting on a show for himself. He is identifying himself with the position of waiter rather than addressing the fact that he is not 100% a waiter. Um, he is, like, deceiving himself pretending to be something he is not. Um, to use the phenomenological language, um, as he explains it later, like, it is the in itself tr taking refuge um, in the lie of its being. Like, it, the, um, let me see if I can find the passage. Um, good, he says on page 115 in my little version of Being in Nothingness, uh, this is the 
Washington Square Press edition translated by Hazel E. Barnes dating back to, oh my, like 1984 is when the translation was renewed. Um, I'm not sure if this edition is any more recent than that, but oh well, I picked it up on the cheap, so hooray. Um, on page 115, he says, Good faith wishes to flee the not believing of what one believes by finding refuge in being. Bad faith flees being by taking refuge in not believing what one believes. It has disarmed all beliefs in advance, those which it would like to take hold of, and by the same stroke the others, those which it wishes to flee. Um... It is extremely difficult to make phenomenological language like that concrete, but I will take a stab at it. What he is saying is that good faith is recognizing that one has a problem, a disconnect between what one is, what one believes, and what is not one. Um, so, like, you cannot 100% believe in whatever it is that you were doing. You cannot 100% identify as what he calls the for itself, like living toward a goal, living toward what you want to become. Um, so good faith recognizes that disconnect and tries to go back to what one is, um, taking refuge in being in order to flee the not believing what one believes. Good faith does not pretend to be something it's not, instead recognizing that the pretension to being something one is not is inevitable, but still, like, you can minimize it somewhat. Bad faith, by contrast, dislikes what it sees in itself. It flees being by taking refuge in not believing what one believes. It is a sort of admission across the board that there is no truth to oneself. It is like, well, if I'm going to be disconnected from who I am, if I'm going to live a lie, then I'm just going to live that lie, and who cares? There's nothing more to life than this, so I will live that lie to the fullest. That's bad faith. The waiter, recognizing that he will never be a waiter, is not a waiter, that this is beneath him, or that this is, you know, some kind of joke on his personhood, um, instead pretends to be a waiter. He says, well, who cares about what I really am? Let's just be this job. Um, he has another example later in the same passage where he says that you can't always identify the difference between good and bad faith. Sometimes it's trickier. Um, he uses the example in this case of a man who is gay and doesn't want to admit it. Um, he says to himself, well, I may have done a couple of, I may have slept with a couple of men, I may have performed some actions that would, you know, be like what a gay man would do, um, but I don't want to be that, and therefore I am not gay. He also, or Sartre also talks about his friend, the gay man's friend, who says, dude, you just need to admit it. Um, and weirdly, Sartre flips the script on this one. He says the homosexual, the gay man, in this case is practicing good faith. He recognizes what it is that he wants. He pursues it, even though he is in some capacity lying to himself about it. Because he recognizes what it is that he wants, he is in fact recognizing his being and attempting to live up to the being that he wants to have. By contrast, the dude, the dude bro who is like, dude, you're just gay, like, 
get over it, come to terms with it. He, on the other hand, is practicing bad faith because in this case, he is trying to make his friend something that he is not. He is failing to recognize the internal conflict that his friend is experiencing. And therefore he is saying what he is saying not to be a good friend, but kind of to be a dick and to be in control of the situation. Um, he wants to score points over the other person and therefore he is being what he is not. Um, he is sort of like disavowing the truth of the situation. He is rejecting what is the case in favor for a convenient lie. Um, so this is a complex sort of relationship, but how this relates to the phenomena phenomenological reduction should seem fairly obvious. Um, importantly for Sartre, when he's looking at Husserl and seeing this sort of careful movement, the epike and then the reduction proper, um, he's could very well be seeing this as a remove from self. If, if authenticity is being what one is, striving to be what one is, taking refuge in what one is, to the exclusion of what one is not, what one is supposed to be, all of the pressures and such that sort of fall on one's shoulders, then phenomenological reduction is deliberately separating oneself from oneself, even though that shouldn't be theoretically possible. That is like the very definition of bad faith in Sartre's thinking. Um, so by that logic, doing phenomenology is nonsense by Sartre's lights, or at least that's what it seemed to me. Um, but in fact, the situation was considerably more complicated than this. Um, so Sartre, his, well, like the philosophy of bad faith was probably one of his most famous and one of the most appealing, um, his philosophical project, his phenomenological project is way more robust and it was pretty quick before I figured that out upon reading the transcendence of the ego and as much as I did of being in nothingness, um, as much as bad faith is a highlight, it certainly isn't the cornerstone of what he has to say, even though it's the one that many people tend to latch on to, um, as I did. So the key to what he's doing specifically in the transcendence of the ego is he is sort of looking at the person um, and critiquing what both Husserl and phenomenologists on the one hand and psychologists on the other have sort of concluded about um, the way that the psyche actually works. Um, so where Husserl sort of posits that there's two parts to a person, like when you are doing phenomenological reduction, you are retreating into one part so you can view the other part objectively. Um, you retreat from yourself into the ego, so to speak, although I'm not using Husserl's language there, I'm using Sartre's. Sartre, by contrast, is saying that the ego is not oneself. The whole point of the transcendence of the ego is to separate the me, the I, the person, from the person that that person perceives themselves to be. On the one hand, you have the I, on the other, you have the me. I is always, always, always the subject, me is always, always, always the object. So when you say to yourself, you know, I am a waiter, what you are in effect saying is the person who I perceive myself to be is the waiter. 
Um, and you can see how that connects to his theory of bad faith. Like this is the whole sort of cornerstone of his philosophy that you know you cannot objectify yourself successfully. There will always be a disconnect between the you who is doing the looking and the you who is being looked at, even when it is yourself looking at yourself. Um, and therefore trying to identify the two of those is bad faith. Trying to identify the two of them is a breach in the way that Sartrean phenomenology works and a breach to one's own self. Um, but we need to sort of back up already and talk about this in the light of being in nothingness and everything that he's doing there. Um, so what I want to stress here about his sort of phenomenology, because I definitely do not have the time or knowledge to be able to like break it down in painstaking detail. Um, what I'd want to stress first is that distinction. Um, Sartre distinguishes between the in itself, which in the transcendence of the ego, he calls the I, that is the person who is perceiving the subject. Um, and he frequently characterizes it um, as an unreflected consciousness. Um, so he calls him, he says that like, uh, when you say, I, uh, when somebody asks you like, what are you doing? And you annoyed without thinking, say like, I'm doing the dishes or I'm going out. Um, when you are not paying attention to your role, but rather to what you are doing, um, that I is in fact you. Um, when you are stressing not like I am the one who is carrying this company to success, but rather, you know, I am way too busy doing this to be able to have a conversation with you right now, that I is authentically the I, that I is the subject, that I is the unreflected consciousness. Um, but what's important is that when you start reflecting on your consciousness, you do not reflect on that I you reflect on a sort of false eye. Um, so on reflection, these this is what he refers to as consciousness, immanence, interiority, and in fact the ego, which is transcendent and at the same time intimate. Um, but they are not the same thing. In fact, they are distinctly not the same thing. Sartre repeatedly emphasizes the difference between the I, the in itself, and the ego or the consciousness or the for itself. What's important about this distinction for Sartre is that you cannot reconcile the two. But at the same time, the two are both crucial to being a person. Um, like you cannot not have consciousness. You cannot you know, totally dissociate yourself from your ego, from your consciousness, from your for itself. Um, the relationship between the in itself and for itself is differentiated by what he calls nothing. But when he says nothing, he's not saying nothing in a negative sense. Like there is no, no difference between me and the ego. Specifically, he is using nothing in a positive sense. Um, he is saying that there is a difference between these two concepts, between the in itself and the for itself, between the I and the me. Um, but that difference is precisely nothing. Um, it is a sort of positive nothing, a nothingness that both unites and separates. And this weird concept, this sort of nothingness, hence the title being in nothingness, is very much at the core of what he wants to talk about. This nothingness 
is both a factor that differentiates and a factor that unites. And as a result, you, like you as a person, you a conscious being, are constantly struggling because you have simultaneously a unity and a disconnect. You simultaneously are both in itself and for itself, I and me, and you are not, I and me. Anytime that you try to assess yourself, you hop into the position of the for itself looking, or you are or rather the I, the in itself, looking at the for itself, attempting to hop into that position and failing on some level. You will never be able to reconcile the two. The closer you come, the more authentic you will be, but mostly that's not in so far as you are like regarding yourself or trying to understand yourself so much as you're just being yourself. Like your for itself, your goals and your values and so on and so forth are aligned with who you are and you are not reconsidering it. You are not spending a lot of time dwelling on it. You are not pretending to be something that you are. You are authentically acting the way that you want to act, which is also the way that you are. Um, and I realize that this is super abstract. This is how phenomenology works, I'm afraid. Um, now the second thing that he talks about that I sort of want to touch on here, um, which he especially stresses in the transcendence, transcendence of the ego, um, is that one of the major ways that we can observe this distinction is he separates the idea of states versus experience or, or Lebniz. Um, he borrows the German word of Husserl's here. Um, so he says, quote, this is page 64 of the, what did, this is the Octagon Books edition, which I tracked down at the library, um, reprinted in 1972. Good heavens, all of my books are so old. Um, but there you go. Um, in the Transcendence of the Ego, on page 64, he says, It is certain that Peter is repugnant to me, but it is and always will remain doubtful that I hate him. Indeed, this affirmation infinitely exceeds the power of reflection. Naturally, one need not therefore conclude that hatred is a mere hypothesis, an empty concept. It is indeed a real object which I am apprehending through the Erlebnis, through experience. But this concept is outside consciousness, and the very nature of its existence implies its dubitability, the fact that it can be doubted. So note what he is saying here. Like, I experience repugnance like i look at peter and i'm like that dude is so gross he makes my skin crawl i never want to spend time around him um i must therefore hate him but importantly for sartre you can never make that jump you probably do hate him but consciousness will never appreciate that hatred. It is beyond consciousness's ability to appreciate that hatred. It is beyond consciousness's ability to look at itself and be able to come to concrete, universal, true conclusions about what one is or what one is not. Because consciousness is always limited to, be, to looking at itself as consciousness, not being able to see itself as an in itself not being able to see itself as the I. The characteristics that one has will always be just beyond what one can see. Instead, what Sartre is emphasizing that we focus on here is the direct experience. The repugnance that we feel, the like vile reaction, the skin crawling, the not wanting to be around Peter, that is something that we can latch onto and talk about and understand and 
properly experience. But the minute we make the next conclusion, the minute we say, I hate him, well, no, you don't hate him. Or if you do hate him, you can't know that you hate him. That is beyond you. Um, that, too, would suggest that Sartre is throwing some serious shade on the phenomenological reduction. Um, he is, at the very least, drawing some pretty hard limits around what Husserl was willing to say and you know, acknowledge as knowledge um, when you were doing the phenomenological reduction. Husserl would not have had a problem with you bracketing yourself and then coming to the conclusion, oh, I must hate Peter. Like, this is an accurate assessment of who I am, given the fact that I have removed myself from myself enough to appreciate myself as objectively as possible. For Sartre, the experience is itself still objective. It is still true. It is still something that you can talk about amongst multiple people and that multiple people can see and weigh in on. But you are always going to be blinded to the extent, to the state, to what you in fact are, as opposed to what you are in fact experiencing. The waiter may be officious and polite and all of those things, and he may be able to say, you know, I am officious, I am polite, I am, you know, behaving in a way that is similar to a good waiter, but he can never go so far as to say, I am a good waiter. That is something that he will never know. And the more that he sort of shapes his life, hammers it into shape in accordance with that state, the more he is doing violence to himself. Um, which, again, is where we come to this idea of bad faith. Um, this disconnection between the state and the experience, this attempt to reconcile them by subordinating what one does to a state that one, one, that one does not know one is, or that one assumes one is, that's bad faith. Good faith, on the other hand, is disregarding the state entirely and instead just living in accordance with the experiences that one is having. Instead of saying, I hate Peter, your response is, man, I really feel uncomfortable around Peter. Maybe I should not spend any more time with this person. Um, that's good faith. That is recognizing what one is and conforming to what one is seeing rather than expostulating some state that one may or may not have and trying to live up to that. Um, I hope that this makes sense. Again, here we are in hardcore phenomenology. This is very difficult to express via lecture and slash podcast. Um, but the other thing that I want to stress here and that kind of we can't avoid talking about the more that we're sort of like trying to push Sartre into Husserlian categories um, is that it really doesn't work that way. Um, Sartre's project is very different from Husserl's project. So as much as, you know, it's kind of, you can see a lot of ways that the phenomenological reduction sort of grates against what Sartre is saying about the in itself and the I and the ego and so on. Um, part of the reason why it's grating isn't because like Sartre doesn't think the phenomenological reduction is good. In fact, I found quite a few passages where he seems to assume that the phenomenological reduction is inevitable. Um, like there is no point where Sartre is like, and a phenomenological reduction is garbage and everyone hates it and it's not true and you can't do it and it's impossible and Husserl should have seen that. On the contrary, there are a num number of times where he will say something like it is ineffective, but we'll come back to that. What I want to stress here is that Sartre is looking at the world not from a Husserlian standpoint, 
but from a way more Heideggerian standpoint, um, as much as the transcendence of the ego is sort of directly focused at Husserl and overturning what he perceives problems with Husserl's philosophy to be, the being and nothingness especially just constantly makes reference to Heidegger. Now we'll be talking about Heidegger in a few more weeks and it's kind of backwards that we're doing Sartre first, but that was the email I received first and I did want to tackle it first um, because it is something that like we can more directly talk about in my lecture series since we've already talked about Sartre to some degree. Um, but what I want to stress is that Heidegger's perspective on like the self and the phenomenological process is also very different from Husserl's. Like Husserl was trying to make a project out of understanding how phenomenology works. Heidegger was just doing phenomenology and importantly both Heidegger and Sartre see phenomenology, see understanding the self, see the business of ontology, understanding being, as being directly related and connected to being in the world. Like this is actually a phrase that Heidegger coins, being in the world. Um, world for Heidegger means a fairly hostile place where all of your experiences and all of your like uncomfortableness with being a person is located. Um, the world will constantly catch you off guard. Um, so being in the world is basically walking on eggshells all of the time. Um, it is constantly trying to like reconcile who I am with all of the pressure and all of the stuff happening around me that is sort of shaping me into something that I am not. Um, and Sartre sees this the same way. Um, like world in Sartre's sense is a little bit more toned down than Heidegger's. Um, like Heidegger even has this distinction where he's like world is hostile but earth is friendly and homey. Um, so like Sartre on the other hand actually identifies the world with consciousness at one point which we'll probably come back to. Um, but what I want to stress is that both Heidegger and Sartre see the world as a necessary component to being. Like you cannot be in a vacuum for Heidegger and for Sartre. Whereas in Husserl, the phenomenological rejection is kind of designed to help you be in a vacuum. It is vacuuming out the world so you can see what an individual part of you or the world actually is. Um, Heidegger, on the other hand, would say if you vacuumed up the world, you would vacuum up Dasein too. Um, and Sartre would agree. So the first thing that we need to sort of like stress about comparing the Husserlian phenomenological reduction to Sartre's philosophy is that they are kind of missing each other. Like they have such radically opposed goals as that, as insofar as that's concerned, that you really can't see one, you can't see the phenomenological reduction through a Sartrean perspective without totally changing the way that you understand both. Um, like Sartre is not looking at people as people. He is looking at them at, as people in a world. You cannot just pull a human being out of the world and examine them as some independent, isolated being in itself. Um, as much as that is something that like Sartre is frequently talking about and Heidegger is frequently talking about, that being in itself can only be understood through the lens and from the perspective of being in the world. Um, the two are inseparable. 
to make this more concrete, like I frequently stressed in several of my in, uh, philosophy classes, like the Tao Te Ching one and the Sartre one as well, and maybe even Nietzsche, um, that you know there is this idea that you need to be authentic with yourself, that you should be yourself, that you should be what comes naturally. Um, and this frequently suggests or implies, even though I don't think I ever made it explicit, that you can, in fact, sort of disconnect yourself from the world, cut yourself off, like enter a trance, enter meditation, put all the cares aside and just be there. Um, be who you are, not what people want you to be. Um, but what Sartre is emphasizing here is that's not how it works. Like, if you pretend to be some isolated individual disconnected from the rest of the world, from other human beings, from your responsibilities, from the things that you care about, from your values, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, what's left? Like, who are you except the experiences you've had in the world? Who are you except the relationships you have to other people and things and the world itself? This is probably nowhere more clear than when Sartre is talking about temporality later on in the being and nothingness. Um, and he stresses that the in itself is one's past. Like he has a fairly complicated relationship between past, present and future, which all philosophers have struggled with seeing as the past is weirdly not ever present and neither is the future, but the present is like this tiny infinitesimally small point um, in the passage of time. So therefore, like none of them have any substance. Um, what Sartre is stressing is that the in itself, that I, is like identical with one's past. That is all it is. Um, like as much as we have stressed, you know, the, the present and the, and the future and wanting to be things and, you know, having aspirations, um, that is all the business of the for itself for Sartre. That is all business of like consciousness reflecting upon itself. Less so the being that is at root, the subject, the I am doing the dishes. Um, so as a consequence, like notice that, you know, the world is like the world of experiences that one has had is identical with what one is. You cannot separate the two. Um, you cannot abstract the being from the world in Sartre's philosophy, um, which is why I found it especially sort of like pointed that uh, Hazel Barnes in her definitions towards the back of the being and, and nothingness, like she has this whole section on, on special terminology um, and lists epike as Husserl's putting into parentheses all ideas about the existence of the world so as to examine consciousness independently of the question of any worldly existence. Sartre, of course, cannot follow this procedure since his task is to examine consciousness in the world. So on the one hand, yes, Sartre seems to be embracing phenomenological reduction throughout a lot of his texts. There are a lot of places where he seems to have no problem with Husserl's idea of epike or the phenomenological reduction proper, this idea that one can sort of like bracket oneself in the process of examining oneself. This all seems to be assumed by Sartre and honestly, like based on the project that Sartre is undertaking in being in nothingness, you know, examining oneself and sort of recognizing one's relationship to the world, he is arguably employing it. Like he doesn't have a problem with phenomenological reduction and I don't see any evidence that he considers it bad faith. But on the other hand, he also doesn't have a place for it in the, the project that he is doing. 
Um, he is not interested in the being abstracted from the rest of the world. So insofar as there is a phenomenological reduction in Sartrean philosophy, it basically just boils down to reflection. Um, as we said, there's a difference between reflective and unreflective consciousness. The unreflective consciousness is just doing what it does. It is by its very nature authentic, and if it were left to its own devices, it would always do what it wants to do. Um, there is no sort of looking at itself and, you know, reevaluating its decisions. However, human experience necessitates the for itself as well as the in itself, the reflective as well as the unreflective consciousness. Um, so he has a fairly extended passage on this that I'm going to read in its entirety um, from Being a Nothingness, pages 121 to 122. Very well, someone will say, but at least we must say that consciousness of belief is consciousness of belief. We rediscover identity and the in itself on this level. It was only a matter of choosing the appropriate plane on which we could apprehend our object. But that is not true. To affirm that the consciousness of belief is consciousness of belief, to suppress the parentheses, and to make belief an object of consciousness, it is to launch abruptly onto the plane of reflectivity. A consciousness of belief, which would only be consciousness of belief, would in fact have to assume consciousness of belief as consciousness of belief. It would resemble that impassive regard which, according to Victor Cousin, consciousness casts on psychic phenomena in order to elucidate them one by one. But the analysis of methodological doubt which Husserl attempted has clearly shown the fact that only reflective consciousness can be dissociated from what is posited by the consciousness reflected on. It is on the reflective level only that we can attempt an epoche, a putting between parentheses, only there that we can refuse what Husserl calls the mitmachen. The consciousness of belief, while irreparably altering belief, does not distinguish itself from belief. It exists in order to perform the act of faith. Thus we are obliged to admit that the consciousness of belief is belief. That is, all of this discussion, like one cannot be aware of oneself being aware of believing, what Sartre is saying is just the act of being aware of believing is itself believing. Like, that's all it is. And you can't make it either being aware of believing as being aware of believing. That's, that doesn't make any sense for Sartre. Um, no, belief is being aware of belief, and being aware of belief is belief. Importantly, that means that the epoche is only available to the reflective consciousness. One cannot perform phenomenological reduction without reflecting, without being a for itself, without have like looking back at oneself and making that dissociation, annihilating, as Sartre would call it, um, the in itself for the sake of this reflection. You are making yourself into a nothing by doing this. And this isn't a bad thing for Sartre, but it is making oneself into what, what, what one is not in order to understand what one is which I realize is ridiculously complicated and confusing, but that's the way that it works. But by this logic, what he is definitely suggesting here is that doing this reflection, like either reflecting in the sort of lowercase r sense or in the capital R sense where Husserl was emphasizing that like it is a religious conversion and you know phenomenological reduction involves this like profound meditative state and only certain people are able to do it. Um, 
in order to achieve capital R reflection, you have to be able, you will already be doing lowercase r reflection. Everybody does lowercase r reflection. It's necessary to being a person. Um, it is therefore inevitable. It is not transgressive. It is not bad faith to reflect on oneself. Um, as much as it is annihilation, and I mean that like A space annihilation rather than annihilation, like destroying oneself, um, for Sartre, annihilating means making nothing of oneself or making nothing in general, um, nothing in this particular sense where it's like a difference which is not a difference. Um, what he is saying is this annihilation, this making distance between oneself and oneself, this, you know, consciousness making a fiction out of being, um, this is just part of being a person. Um, at the very worst, um, in the, the transcendence of the ego, he suggests um, that the epike, the, the phenomenological reduction, might be motivated by anxiety. Um, he says that it might be because we are like uncomfortable with ourselves that we are led to the phenomenological reduction. Um, so on pages 102 to 103, he says, on the other hand, if the natural attitude appears wholly as an effort made by consciousness to escape from itself by projecting itself into the me and becoming absorbed there, and if this effort is never completely rewarded, and if a simple act of reflection suffices in order for conscious spontaneity to tear itself abruptly away from the I and be given as independent, then the epike is no longer a miracle, an intellectual method, an erudite procedure. It is an anxiety which is imposed on us and which we cannot avoid. It is both a pure event of transcendental origin and an ever possible accident of our daily life. What Sartre seems to be suggesting is that the phenomenological reduction is something that we do to take refuge in trying to understand ourselves. We do it from anxiety to try and desperately reconcile the I and the me, the consciousness and the in itself, the in itself and the for itself. Um, a reconciliation which both needs to happen and is natural to attempt, but will never actually take place. Um, and yet it is not bad faith. It is not transgressive. It is not destructive because that specifically refers to not, or sort of giving up on being for the sake of like the fiction that you have propagated instead. Um, so at the end of the day, like to try and make this into an actual answer, um, I hesitate to say that phenomenological reduction is transgressive um, in Sartre's sense. Like it's sort of parallel to what Sartre has to say. Like it exists alongside what Sartre is doing. Um, Sartre doesn't seem to have a problem with phenomenological reduction, like if there is a place for it in his system, it is a place where, you know, the, the person, the, the in itself is trying to understand itself so desperately that it leads to these sort of dramatic flourishes of philosophy to try and get there from here. Um, a process which Sartre considers not a bad thing, functionally impossible, but still possibly productive and done in good faith. Um, but that doesn't mean that Sartre approves. Um, Sartre is describing the phenomenological reduction as a phenomenological event. 
Um, he is looking at phenomenological reduction as one of many things that consciousness does to try and reconcile itself to itself, to try and fix the fact that consciousness is, by its very definition, a being itself trying to be itself even though it can't, um, because its very nature is separate from that being. Um, so... But I suspect that Pavel Pavlovich had a slightly different mode in mind when he was asking this question. Um, specifically, like going back to that question, he mentions, imagine that identification with one egos is part of an ideological system. If the capitalist ideology forces the subject to see himself alienated from nature and himself as being in itself, can we argue that the subject's phenomenological conversion is transgressive in relation to the ideology that forms the worldview? Notice... Mr. Pavlovich is emphasizing not the worldview of the in itself, but the sort of worldview imposed on the in itself, the capitalist worldview, or arguably the socialist worldview, or the Marxist worldview, or the fascist worldview. Um, is the phenomenological conversion transgressive related to the ideology on the outside, as opposed to the ideology on the inside? So if Sartre doesn't have a problem with phenomenological reduction, does the worldview we are inclined to adopt lead us to ourselves rejecting the phenomenological reduction? Um, and this one is tricksy. Like, Sartre himself is very much avoiding any sort of outside philosophical um, assumptions in this in these texts that I'm looking at. Um, he is trying quite deliberately to keep his phenomenological phenomenological assumptions as abstract as possible. Uh, you can plug capitalism or Marxism into this system to see where it leads you. And in Humanism of Existentialism, he stresses, you know, existentialism is perfectly compatible with Marxism. Existentialism is perfectly compatible with capitalism. Existentialism is perfectly compatible with a number of different ideological frameworks. Fascism doesn't seem to be one of them, by the way. Like, as far as, you know, existentialism seems to be able to justify any kind of behavior, Sartre does seem to draw a line several times uh, as far as any philosophy that, like, rejects freedom one way or the other, um, either insofar as it limits the freedom that people actually have or convinces people that they are not free and therefore do not have to accept responsibility for their actions. Um, he's pretty pretty deliberate and pretty direct about that in his humanism of existentialism as i think i mentioned in my lecture um so insofar as some of these worldviews could perceive freedom as a threat yes for sure the phenomenological reduction would be transgressive like fascists don't want you to you know re-examine your ideology on a regular basis their entire system would fall apart if you did that that's why they employ as much propaganda as they do um, but when it comes to capitalism which uh mr pavlovich references explicitly that seems to be a bit of a trickier question um I suspect that it is anathema to consumerism because consumerism, like fascism, sort of relies on people just buying shit and doing what they're told and not reevaluating what it is that they're doing. Um, you, the whole point is, you know, shut up and eat your Netflix. Like, that's very much how consumerism is sort of designed to work. Um, but at the same time, capitalism as this sort of big project 
in, at least in its sort of like ideal form where, you know, it's the free market folks and, you know, whoever has the best product survives and so on and so forth. Um, I think in that sense, phenomenological reduction is at least theoretically permitted um, as long as it produces something better than has come before. Um, it's certainly like... In practice, it looks very different. Like the minute that you, the capitalist, building your fancy factory to build to like build a better mousetrap, and in order to do that, you are like deliberately paying people as little as possible in order to maximize your profits, so you can build more factories, you can build better mousetraps, you can expand and expand and expand and expand, and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's a problem. Like any time that a phenomenological reduction was participated in there anytime that you looked at yourself in the cold light of philosophical self-analysis and you realized that you were in fact limiting other people's freedom for the sake of gain that would lead you to some transgression for sure um but i'm not entirely sure if that's at all what sartre is trying to talk about here or even what mr pavlovich is trying to get at again i'm not entirely sure like how to approach the question um, what I can say, though, is reflection, as Sartre talks about it, reflection as sort of like the lowercase r, looking at oneself, trying to square oneself with oneself, trying to overcome the nothing by making more nothing, um, as Sartre would probably see it, um, that's natural. Like, it's kind of unnatural insofar as it doesn't spring from the in itself, but Sartre seems to see the complex being in itself and for itself as both being crucial to the process of identity. Um, as much as the for itself is always an object, as much as the ego is always an object, always separate from the in itself, authenticity so little that, you know, Sartre doesn't talk about authenticity much at all, despite the fact that it's kind of like the solution to all of his bad faith problems. Um, authenticity does not seem to involve like totally dissociating yourself from yourself. Like it, it does not involve shutting down your consciousness and just doing whatever it is you want to do. Um, I suspect anyone who pretended to do that, Sartre would call inauthentic in bad faith because they are not recognizing the fact that there is a disconnect between oneself and oneself they are not recognizing the nothingness side of being um in fact people are both um people are on the one hand whatever it is their natural instincts and impulses the i of i am doing the dishes is doing but they are also the ability to like sit in a dark room and think about who they are for a while to be kept up at night with existential questions to reevaluate who they are and who they want to be um as much as that is a nothingness for Sartre, as much as that is a fiction um it is also a necessary fiction it is a fiction that is also intrinsic to who a person is um at least that's as I understand it. Again, this is way over my head and I am not a Sartre scholar and I've probably stepped on a lot of Sartrean ideas here as I've tried to understand and process this particular question. Uh, but that's the best I've got. So I hope that is helpful, Mr. Pavlovich. Um, I hope that this was productive and useful. Um, and I suspect I'll be running a little short on this one. That's fine with me, because um, as much as this is a really interesting and really sort of deep question, I am also like wholly unprepared to handle it. Um, 
If you do have any more questions about SART, if you do have any more questions about phenomena, phenomenology, feel free to shoot them my way. I definitely don't mind turning this into a series. Um, as always, if you have other related questions about philosophy or literature or mythology or whatever, anything in my wheelhouse or heck, anything outside of it, feel free to send those my way as well. Um, for next time, I am hoping to approach Kit's question. Um, he apparently wants to know about the influence of 19th century German ideology and German philosophy um, on 19th century American culture as Germans were immigrating to America en masse uh, in the 19th century. Um, so we are going to talk about that, and I suspect we'll be running into some phenomenology there as well. Um, at the very least, I imagine we're going to hit a lot of Marxism and probably the formation of early unions. Um, but we will talk about that later. I still have to do my research on that one. I have a book set aside just for this purpose. Um, but I am also anticipating that things are going to get a little crazy on my end. Um, at this point, I've already uploaded at least one lecture for my coming semester. Um, next week starts my classes. Um, so my first philosophy class will be next Monday at this point. That's Monday the 25th for those of you listening to this after the fact. Um, and while I still haven't finalized my schedule because everything is chaos in the days of COVID, um, it looks like I'm not going to be recording any new lecture seasons anytime soon. Like I was kind of hoping and kind of dreading uh, the possibility of like recording an ethics class or recording my general humanities class, which is a lot of fun. We talk about the devil a lot. Um, but it seems like I'm just teaching more mythology and philosophy, and I've already got all those lectures recorded, so easy peasy for me, and that means I get to devote my attention to other projects instead. Um, so we will use this time to talk about some of those other projects. Um, I suspect I've plugged myself in the past. Longtime viewers probably know all this stuff. Feel free to check out early. Um, but I am working on numerous other projects across the internet at various times. Um, my friend Wes and I are very much watching our video game academy sort of snowball into something bigger and better with every passing week. Um, we are hoping to start talking about Near Automata um, in the coming weeks, which is probably one of the most philosophically dense games I've ever played, so that should be quite a trip. Um, we should have our first conversation later this week and have it uploaded pretty shortly afterwards. Um, you can find that stuff at, I believe, videogameacademy.org. We actually like went out and bought the actual name. Hooray! We're official and stuff. We are, we're professionals now, kind of. Um, so yes, check out videogameacademy.org. I recently published an article that I'm actually rather proud of um, about Lobotomy Corporation, a weirdo... Uh, um, Korean game about managing monsters and how that's helped me to sort of like approach the horror of 2020 and 2021. Um, so check that out, videogameacademia.org. Um, we also, uh, I am still doing stuff for other classes, obviously, but every now and again I will in fact update my actual like legit blog. Um, that is Watch, if you search for Watchman Zeke. Uh, 33.wordpress.com that should take you there um, I, it's been a while since I've updated it but I still have high hopes of completing or at least con or continuing my decolonization project 
as I've been going through my library and looking at some potentially racist, potentially colonialist, imperialist literature and questioning whether or not it needs to sit on my shelf instead of being extirpated in favor of something a little bit more open-minded and diverse. Um, so I imagine I'll be continuing that. One of these days I'm gonna get around to getting Heart of Darkness up there um, because that's one of the big ones and also one that is strangely important to my personal history. Um, so we'll talk about that. Um, other than that, I suspect, depending on how light my course load tends to be, that I might be continuing my uh, lecture series for my church um, on Christian history. We did the first, um, we did the first half of the series in the summer last year. Um, I talked about basically Christian history from, um, you know, Christianity being a thing, uh, all the way up to the Renaissance, basically, like we talked about the Christianity under the Roman emperors, including Constantine's adoption of Christianity, all the way through the Middle Ages and like monasticism and like tyrannical popes. Um, it was crazy. There's a lot of really interesting stuff there. Um, but yep, I'm doing that for my church, which is New Beginnings Bible Church. That is www.nbbcnj.org. Um, if you look at the, the list of the summer study, um, you should be able to find all of the videos that we did, um, which include my PowerPoints and stuff, um, which I found it fascinating. I hope you do as well. Um, other than that, I think things are relatively quiet on my end, like I'm trying to write a novel or two or four or all of them. Um, but that's for another day. Um, you can find my fiction blog connected to the Watchman Zeke uh, blog, so feel free to look for it there. Um, but again, if you have any questions about any of this, send them to me at profbkozlowski2 at gmail.com. Um, I will be happy to answer questions. I'd just as soon keep this going, especially since it seems like it's going to be a fairly light semester, he says, before like three more classes get dropped on his shoulders. I don't know why, but my department chairs apparently think I'm their fixer at this point, so I'll just like at the last minute give me all of the classes. Um, but anyway, in the meantime, enjoy the lovely winter weather we're having, question mark. Um, I hope that you enjoyed this whole phenomenological, phenomenological examination. Wasn't too abstract or confusing. Um, and I'll look forward to talking some German philosophy in the coming weeks. Till then, farewell.